Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. This is a continuation of our series on regulations emanating out of the USA at the moment, based upon the presidential order um, back in March 2022, um, ensuring the responsible development of digital assets, it's branded as. And Nitin, hello, how are you and who have we got along here today? Hey Derek, glad to be here. It's a never-ending saga. But today we have a special guest. In fact, it's it's a good friend of mine. It's an honor and privilege to have him here with us. He's also a colleague of mine, both at IBM, uh, Sam Tenkate, uh, who is now an MD for governance and controls at State Street. I also work at State Street. So while I'm doing technology design, uh, he's looking at governance and control. Prior to this, Sam was, again, a colleague of mine at IBM. He was leading some of the very pioneering efforts in helping the industry understand the implications of regulation and how do you build sort of systems uh, you know, when it comes to crypto. So glad to have Sam with us and looking forward to sh him sharing his perspectives around how he sees the industry evolve, especially in context of governance controls and, and, and regulation that's emerging. So Sam, welcome uh, to our show here today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Derek, so what do we have? Well, welcome along, Sam. I mean, we've got a whole list of questions, um, but I was wondering if you'd like to give us any sort of more of a background about how you arrived at where you've arrived and what is the task of, of and the role that you're playing there? Sure. Um, so I come from a 10-year career at Promontory Financial Group, uh, which was, as Nitin described, acquired by IBM uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, and the last three years that I spent at Promontory was really focused on helping both crypto native firms become or look more like regulated financial institutions and then uh, also help financial institutions understand the risks associated with the cryptocurrency market and ecosystem so that they could enter the space in a safe and sound manner. Uh, and then lastly, I also worked with a number of state and federal regulators to help them understand the risks associated with the digital asset ecosystem. Uh, and all the various risks associated with engaging uh, in that kind of activity. So kind of a broad sense of sets, set of skills to really help uh, kind of merge the two different industries together. You know, it's a very uh, and then at State Street, I help, uh, I'm sorry, and then at State Street, I, I help with um, looking at our products and services, particularly in the digital asset space, to make sure that they are fit for purpose and that they have the appropriate risk governance and controls associated with them. So you're an extraordinary navigator of briar patches then, because it's an extraordinarily complex space, isn't it? I mean, you've got state regulations, you've got federal regulations, you've got the SEC, which is, which is policing um, very old 1929 securities regulations. Um, and then you've got House of Congress and Senate lawmakers that actually haven't yet made laws specific to these regulations. And so it's a moving feast. And I think that's what we're particularly interested in in learning about today 
you know, we've, we've really seen this activity back in March 9 with this branded statement of ensuring responsible development of digital assets brought out by um, President Biden. But it's the engagement of 17 different departmental and interdepartmental organisations um, to provide paper after paper to work out exactly what's happening in the industry, how to police it. And you know, before we discuss the sort of the six or seven primary targets that they were trying to um, achieve out of that, and the very first one was you know protect consumers, which I I've got a feeling it's 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 a lovely thing to say. It's a little bit like saying protect police and nurses and teachers, um, but I don't think it's the core. I guess the sense that the core is the next two points, which is protect the financial system and take, protect the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. So that's a broad statement, my statement, but what's your view of, of whether you see what's happening at the moment um, at an SEC level, at a Congress level, as being positive and constructive, and maybe give some examples where it, where it might be, um, or where you see this as just simply transitional regulations, um, or are we gonna head towards the US going into sort of a crypto, um, a crypto sort of regulatory winter. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but what are your thoughts there? Sure. And sure. before you answer, Sam, uh, be careful of using the word transition or transitory. Uh, that term is overly used uh, by by the <laughs> by the government systems per se. Derek, this is again referring to thank you, um, Mr. Powell's assertion for transitory with inflation. Of course, it's just a joke. joke but sorry, Sam, go ahead. <laughs> no, absolutely. So I, I think what I would start off by saying is that. Uh, regulation in the United States uh, is principle-based, which makes it very difficult um, for institutions on the receiving end to really understand what are the expectations. And everything is also risk-based, which makes it even further uh, more complicated than you might find in Europe where it's more prescriptive. So I think that in and of itself makes it a little bit more difficult in the United States more generally. Um, but having said that, um, I think that in the United States, the, there is an emphasis on investor protection from the, from the Securities and Exchange Commission, and then consumer protection from other banking regulators like the New, New York Department of Financial Services that are attempting to regulate this space. And I think whereas uh, two years ago, there was a lot of attention say we need a new regulatory framework, we need regulatory clarity. Um, I think now we're in a place where the regulators think there is um, enough of a regulatory regime but it's how do we sort of adapt it to fit regulatory, uh, sorry, digital assets more generally. And so um, I think in the United States, you'll find that uh, the SEC claims that it has enough regulatory authority to really hone in on this industry. Uh, and that might be a controversial point, but the SEC went to Congress, you know, testified in front of Congress. Congress said, do you need more authority? Uh, Gary Gensler said, no, I think I have the right authority to really regulate this industry. Um, and what, we'll find is that the regulatory agencies, they use something called regulatory uh, regulation by enforcement. And so they're trying to provide examples of where um, in industry players have sort of stepped out of bounds of the existing regulatory framework and try to bring it into the regulatory framework. So an example is the SEC uh, is very clear that anything that is deemed a security should be under their supervision. And really the, the regulatory clarity that people are looking for is when do we consider something as a security? Uh, I know that this is probably a topic that you've covered in many, many times before, um, but you know the SEC would say that the Howey test and the Reeves test, those are pretty clear. Uh, they are principle-based um, tests 
right? So there isn't a sort of a checklist that you can go through. There are certain judgment calls that you would make, but they would argue that for the most part, it's pretty clear that any kind of uh, digital asset that goes through those four stages of evaluation and determined to be a security should be regulated by the SEC in order to protect investors um, from uh, nefarious activity uh, and, and, and not disclosing the potential risks associated with a particular asset. So I, that was sort of a mouthful and maybe not super articulate, but I guess what I would say is that I think the overwhelming belief in the United States is that the existing regulatory framework is sufficient to cover the digital asset space uh, and that it's really about really the interpretation of when one particular agency has authority over another that is potentially what needs to be more clarified. Um, and then uh, what I would also say is quite interesting in the United States at least is that we have uh, a federal regulatory regime and then we have state regulatory regimes. And so you'll find that certain states are a little bit more advanced in providing more clarity around what they expect of the digital asset industry. So the likes of the New York Department of Financial Services, which was a pioneer and launched the BIT license in 2017. Uh, you also have the state of Wyoming that has put forward uh, additional clarity and a particular re regulatory regime in that state, as well as the state of Nebraska. Um, and in the United States, you'll hear something called race to the top or race to the bottom. Uh, ideally, we don't want to have a race to the bottom where you'll have certain states that have much lower standards and then that's sort of a race to the lower standard states versus a race to the top where you'll have certain companies that'll go to the state with the highest standards because they think that that is a competitive advantage for their particular product or service. Um, and uh, so, so really, in, I think one of the, the things that we should be watching over the course of the next year in the United States is, do we have a shift from federal regulation uh, really kind of squeezing out public cryptos um, and having that activity move to state regulation? Or do we have the federal regulators sort of open up a little bit more and allow for the interaction with public and permissionless blockchains? And that's really, I think, the core, what you've seen over the last three or four months is that federal regulators have really come together, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, and in a very key statement on in sure. January uh, 9th, they made the claim, there was just one sentence that was embedded in that, in that <laughs> document that said that at this time, they do not believe that interacting with public permissionless blockchains can be done in a safe and sound manner. And for those of you who don't know what safe and soundness is, it is this sort of generalized principle concept uh, of being able to enact activities, protect investors, protect consumers, um, and carry out financial activity uh, in a way that I guess is safe and sound. And so there isn't really a clear definition of safety and soundness. And that's where you get sort of this uh, interpretation and reliance on your uh, regulating, your regulatory staff for that interpretation of what that really means. Yeah, I, I just, I, I'm not a libertarian. I, I'm not somebody that believes there's no laws. I live in Australia and Australia's got a, a pretty solid set of laws and, and a lot of it's debated well and, and it's designed to, um, you know, enhance lifestyle and enhance well-being of, of the population as a whole. When I hear a statement from, um, from a regulatory authority as broad as that, um, and I see them seeking to regulate very, very new technologies and new assets um, under an old regulatory regime relating to the definitions of, of um, securities and then, of course, the overlying security obligations. I, I don't think that's very progressive. What concerns me with that is, is you're, seeing, um, you're seeing people looking at a DAO, by example, 
and, and seeing a DAO and trying to define it under a 1929 set of regulations and then overlaying a set of regulations on that saying that we want to, want to basically beat the DAO into submission to a 1929 set of regulations. Whereas if you were to look at more progressively, you would be able to create a set of regulations that acknowledge that these are actually totally distributed and global products don't necessarily have a footprint in the US, and if they do have a footprint, probably one that moves very quickly out of it, um, and, and consider the US's position um, in a global and rapidly evolving um, new financial crypto space. I don't get the sense that it's doing that. I get the sense that it's got a hammer and it sees everything as a nail. What do you think, Sam? Um, so I think that, that uh, regulation is very jurisdictionally based. So the United States really cares about protecting American investors and American consumers, and they don't necessarily care what happens outside of that. Um, and I think you'll find that, that that was a very clear example with the FTX uh, example where the FTX uh, US business was subject to certain US protections and supposedly had less of a, 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 a negative impact on those consumers that were using the US-based uh, platform. Um, but for US regulators to try and globally regulate uh, a product that is so global in nature, I think is sort of beyond their bounds um, and would require a sort of an international cooperation, which um, is very difficult to accomplish. So even though we have international standard setting bodies like the Bank of International Settlements, BIS, the Basel Committee of Banking Supervision, uh, Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, uh, that try to uh, bring together different nation states in setting global standards for the monetary system more generally, um, you'll see that most of those are very limited in their ability to effectuate real standards and change in certain jurisdictions that just don't want to play by the same rules as the West. So um, I think to develop a global regulatory regime is a very tall ask that probably doesn't have a near future. Um, and I think even act, enacting just general uh, broad change in the US regulatory regime requires acts of Congress uh, and can take many, many years. And so um, again, I think in the United States, we're, we're very focused on doing principle-based regulation. I think the principles haven't necessarily changed from 50 years ago about protecting investors, providing um, transparency, providing reporting, uh, providing you know, uh, protections for consumers, bankruptcy remoteness, um, clear disclosures, all those sort of principles stay the same, um, whether it is uh, the internet that revolutionized banking uh, or blockchain that has the potential to revolutionize uh, payments, uh, et cetera. I, I think the principles still stay the same. So uh, much unlike the EU, which is a little bit more prescriptive, I think if you wanna figure out what is this financial instrument, what kind of category does it fall into, there is a much more prescriptive set of um, criteria that you can follow to determine, is this a payment instrument or is this a, um, a, 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 an asset that uh, isn't used for payments? So I, I think there's very different sort of approaches that you'll find um, in America versus the EU versus Australia, which you know Australia just came out with a proposal for a token uh, classifications and, and, and framework, yeah. uh, which I think mm. is, is fantastic. Um, but it's a totally different approach than, than what we experience here in the United States. And the United States is really the largest uh, financial 
uh, system right now. The U.S. dollar is, you know, the U.S. you know the, the world currency, and so um, they they have sort of the claim over how to uh, set forward regulation more generally over the global financial system. Hmm. So so let me actually table the last part, uh, which is such an important part that you make, uh, Sam. And I, I have a question following on because I've been thinking about as to you know to prepare for this conversation. But help us unpack a few things for non-U.S. audiences, because this entire, and you're right about the fact that we are building global system. You're right about the fact that most of the assets are, have a global significance. Like, you know, we talk about Bitcoin, Ether, same rules of engagement, no matter where you're in the world. And that essentially is the disruption. But if you look at the cryptocurrency and exchanges, which are legal in the U.S. and fall under and I'm, I'm I'm inching towards helping the audience understand the gravity of complexity, especially in the U.S. context, and the challenges it imposes to startup communities and the 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 disruptive forces who are trying to use technology to change things as they stand today. So, cryptocurrency and exchanges are legal in the U.S. They fall under regulatory scope of generally BSA or Bank Secrecy Act. In practice, I, I think, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, means that entities that are uh, what what EU would call as VASPs or in the US cryptocurrency exchanges or any service provider that deals with these crypto assets must register with uh, with FinCEN, uh, implement a robust AML CFT program or extend what they already have, maintain appropriate records, submit record authorities. And in many cases today, this generally falls under, you know, CS, you know, SEC for investments, CFTC for 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 many for any crimes that involves interstate commerce, which is, you know, commodities like, like you know like functions, IRS for tax regulations, and then you also have some of the sort of elements of cryptocurrency that's generally regulated as if, for example, if it's a sale, it constitutes sale of security under the state or federal law. If it's money, then you need to have money transfer or MSB licensing under federal law. There's no real unifying framework. And then you have, of course, every state have their own sort of banking regulation. Help us understand how does one view the system, even though it's principle-based, and I think me and you have discussed in the past, it's it's about uh, instruments and activities that generally governs this principle-based approach that you, you know, that you mentioned. Help us unpack this because two things. One is, yes, you're right. US dollar is still the global reserve. We enjoy that privilege. Um, which we may not have for long, but at the same time, I think uh, this entire regulatory can be quite confusing for, let's say, if me and you were to, uh, you obviously know enough about it, but but let's say me and Derek would you know, come to US and open sort of a crypto business. Uh, what do I need to think about? How do I think about this? Sure. So um, I, I think the first part is whether or not you are dealing with fiat currency. So that is a highly regulated industry. If you're dealing with, with US dollars or any type of cash, then like you said, you have to register with FinCEN as a money service business because you're dealing with money. And then more often than not, each state will require you to get a money transmitter license because you're using, you're, you're interacting with money. And so um, that's sort of one part of it. And the regulation in the United States that's really focused on deterring financial crime uh, and making sure that anybody that deals with, with, with uh, US dollars is registered by the state so that they can um, protect consumers that are using your services uh, for cash. I think once you sort of move beyond the exchange of US dollar, um, then it really becomes in uh, what are the state requirements that you need to meet. And so in certain states, it's much more clear, uh, like in New York, where they've specifically carved out any kind of activity with cryptos. Um, but in other states, it's not so clear. So 
uh, the state of Massachusetts. Um, you know, they don't have anything that's necessarily specific to cryptocurrencies. And there, what a lot of institutions will do is they'll they'll look at the laws and they'll try to interpret those laws as to the specific activity that a particular entity is trying to do. Um, with the SEC, the SEC will provides oversight over anything that is deemed a security. Now, this is a kind of a, it's a difficult um, uh, principle um, because a security is anything that the SEC says is a security. So it's not that it's by default not a security, uh, it's that the SEC is the one that makes that determination. How do they make that determination? They use the principle, the four principles under the Howey test and the Reeves test. And really what they'll find, what you'll find in some of the, uh, the news articles and, and, and uh, court cases out there is that they generally believe that the first three prongs of the Howey test are uh, met for most digital assets with the exception of Bitcoin. Uh, and then the really the fourth prong of the Howey test is the one that is somewhat up for debate. And that is, do you expect uh, an expectation of profits solely derived from the effort of others? So if you expect that the value of a particular asset is going to increase and that you will benefit from that solely as um, the consequence of the effort of, usher, of others, then you can pretty much reasonably assume that it is a security. And that means that you should be disclosing and registering that particular asset with the SEC. And that is a very lengthy process. That is a, a time-consuming uh, effort, and it will cost you a lot of money in legal fees. But again, the, the, the other side of that is that there are certain minimum reporting requirements and disclosures that in investors should expect from engaging in a particular asset that protects them from nefarious activity. And I think what we saw in the ICO boom is that all of a sudden you had hundreds of different, different um, initial coin offerings, very little information about those companies, whether those companies were even registered, what that money was going towards, um, and, 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 and what it really meant to buy a particular token. And so you saw an explosion of scams and fraud enter the market quite rapidly uh, with institutional investors really having no recourse for recovery um, if those tokens, you know, if that, if that, if you purchase those tokens or those coins, and then all of a sudden the company behind that disappeared a day later, there was really no recourse for many investors in that situation. So I don't think we want to have that yeah. either. It, it, it's definitely a balance and the bar is very high in the United States, but that's also, I think, why a lot of investors come to the United States. And that is sort of a haven for investors is because they want that reassurance that they're, what they're investing in means something and that they have a recourse uh, ability for recourse if those um, investments turn out to be scams. Is that sort of addressing no, the question then? Or, or, yeah, or, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. No, I think this is uh, very well articulated, uh, Sam, as, as expected. Let me actually have a follow-on because you mentioned a few things in terms of US dollar being still the world reserves or world currency, as you, as you mentioned. And one thing we've discussed on the show, this is Derek and me have opined this several times in context of markets in context of correlation in context of you know volatility that that crypto actually has seen in the past few years and and just like the stable coins i think which bring in liquidity into the system so this is when you convert your you know through a banking on ramp off ramp you know into the system to buy crypto because not everybody's a miner or not everybody's participating in this sort of crypto esque ecosystem it also inherits, this is a crypto ecosystem, inherits the challenges and opportunities of global macro, right? Which is 
inflation, money supply that brings in. And we've seen this during cheap money era. Uh, and as the Fed goes into the quantitative tightening, we've seen liquidity sort of have outflows, which has been sort of, uh, which has been immense in the last year or so, as you can understand, um, as the interest rates kept moving up, causing a crypto bear market. Also, I think a reason for a direct correlation to other risk on assets like equities. So what Bitcoin and other crypto assets used to be completely uncorrelated, we have now established that they are equally correlated to, to risk on assets, which again, now Bitcoin sits in the spectrum of, or the far extreme spectrum of, of uh, risk on assets. Now, do you think the root cause of this disjointed regulatory affairs in the U.S. sort of dollar and global reserve status, which impacts the banking on ramp off ramps, also like for example, stablecoin, which is primary liquidity, you know, a source for crypto, and just to follow on that piece, as you're as you're pining on this, is if crypto decouples, for example, let's say we end up selecting or choosing Bitcoin and Ether as truly liquid assets, and we don't have to necessarily worry about the U.S. dollar component that you described both in terms of keeping in mind with FINSA and other regulatory agencies, will that sort of, you know, will that solve some of these challenges that we are seeing in terms of uh, this disjointed and overlapped regulatory challenges that we see constantly? Uh, I'll, I'll stop here to see if that made sense. Um, I, I think I kind of get your question, but uh, let me sort of make a couple of points and then, and then yeah. let me know if I didn't, <laughs> I didn't address it. So one thing that I would say is that maybe it's a controversial opinion, but I would say that Bitcoin is really an American product at this point. I think something like 40% of the miners are located in the United States. Uh, a number of the holders uh, of Bitcoin are American-based either institutions or individuals. And so even though everybody thinks of Bitcoin as being a global product, um, for the most part, it is based in the United States. Um, and, and that's, of course, you know, two years after China has sort of provided this exodus. But uh, Bitcoin, as well as Ethereum, there's a huge amount of node validators that are based in the United States. And so a lot of the activity around Bitcoin and Ethereum is still based in the United States. Um, and so I, I think that um, it's it's a lot more of a jurisdictional product and less of a global product than people might really expect uh, when you get kind of under the hood of, of the mechanics of a particular asset. Um, so that's one. Uh, the second thing is when you talked about Bitcoin being sort of a risk uh, risk on asset. And so the New York Fed uh, actually published a paper about this about two weeks ago where they did a thorough analysis over the course of the years. And they found that uh, contrary to uh, popular belief, um, Bitcoin doesn't actually move necessarily with monetary news in the United States or in other jurisdictions. And so even though we don't see it as a hedge necessarily as uh, against um, an inflationary hedge like everybody thought it was, uh, it's also not necessarily as responsive to monetary policy and monetary news as other people expected. So it's kind of its own sort of risk on type of asset. Um, I think in terms of... Uh, Liquidity, uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you were sort of asking me around that particular thing point. is that if we, I mean, half of the challenges that we look into this is because of the banking system, right? We have on-ramp, yeah. off-ramp. And one of the things that, and again, we've seen this again, they've been, you know, uh, more, you know, monikers like choke point 2.0 that we have seen uh, recently is what if we were to treat Bitcoin and Ether as truly liquid assets and not use the banking system? will, besides the property rights issue and the broader jurisdictions of a transaction system that CFTC enjoys today, do you think 
that will have the same regulatory challenges if we simply don't relate USD and we simply rely upon Bitcoin and Ether. So let's say Bitcoin, which actually has a lot of regulatory clarity today. I just buy Bitcoin and use that as a liquid instrument in all the entire crypto ecosystems and not use banking system at all. Do you think that solves some of these challenges and some of the overlaps and confusion that we see in the industry? Does that make life simpler? Or do you think yeah. security and exchange commission will still view some of the asset security and they still have, have governance, even though there is no impact to banking system, ergo no impact to the lives of people, investors, so to speak? Yes, uh, I, th I, I think I understand your question. It's very interesting, hypothetical, um, for sure. So I think that it would potentially make things easier. However, I think the SEC's mission um, and the uh, even like the CFPB or state banking regulators, they are they're focused on protecting investors and consumers. And so whether they use the U.S. dollar or not is is makes it a very clear cut decision for them. But I think as soon as we see a mass adoption of a particular uh, asset, um, even if it is not tied to the U.S. dollar, you'll still see the regulatory interests come into play and probably you'll find that they'll come into the, the play uh, primarily around financial crimes. So financial crimes is a huge issue in the United States, that, uh, especially after 9-11 with the Bank Secrecy Act um, and other acts that have, have been passed since then. So if Bitcoin is being used without any relation or referential to the US dollar, if it is, in, if it is being used um, for nefarious activity, the US regulators will step in and take notice. Um, if it's tied to a US dollar, of course, it's gonna be a much more clear cut decision. But I think uh, you, you can kind of see this example uh, if we look way back when to the Silk Road. So when the Silk Road was first started, it was sort of the first use case for Bitcoin. It was the first time there was a digital money or cash that could be used to buy products. The Silk Road, if you don't know, was a website that basically sold anything and everything under the sun, whether it was illegal or not. And it got a lot of attention from the United States uh, government because there was a lot of transactions occurring on that. There was a lot of money laundering happening in that. And the primary pay payment method was not US dollar. It wasn't anything to do with US dollars. It was really Bitcoin. Um, and that is really where the Bitcoin first got its association with financial crime and illicit activity. Uh, now, of course, there were a lot of events after that, the, the hacking of Qualdriga X, the, um, the, and many of these other incidences that has tied digital assets and cryptocurrencies more closely to financial crime. Um, but but the, the US regulators will, will take notice primarily from a uh, deterring financial crime, deterring money laundering, uh, but also from a sanction standpoint. They want to, the US institute sanctions, yes, it's focused on US dollars, but the global principle of deterring sanctioned activity is a global security one, not necessarily just one tied to a specific dollar. So one thing on this, Derek, and I actually spent a lot of time looking into the evolution of this Hong Kong. I used to go to HKMA quite a bit uh, in my IBM days and working with them and formulating these things. This is pre-COVID, of course. And I think while, you know, post-COVID, uh, it's important for China to spruce up Hong Kong as a strong financial hub, not only to attract capital, but also mm -hmm. to be able to, have the market structure they need to be able to be the conduit of global capital coming into China. The second thing is that you have China, Hong Kong as you know one country, two system rule, 
where they're able to do all these experiments in financial hub and because yes. Bitcoin blockchain is tied so close to the financial system, they would like to use it as a test bed, which is also risk mitigation for the rest of greater China uh, from that perspective. So there's one of the, those elements. And I think the implication, which is the question I think you're asking, Sam, is in the bigger scheme of things, both from a US competitiveness, but also in terms of the global landscape as, as it evolves, what is the impact of that on currencies and, and how does it sort of evolve in, in uh, your flight to Hong Kong, for instance, whether it's investment firms or whether it's the various ecosystem players, the OTC trading firms, the uh, custodians and the folks who are dealing with virtual asset service providers. I'll pause here to see if um, Sam, you're back and... Yeah, I think there's a reason that the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, at least for the time being, and that's because there are uh, the U.S. government is is open, it's transparent, and there's strong regulation. And so, um, I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. There's a reason that South American countries use the U.S. dollar for payments, um, and they don't use the Chinese yet. <clears throat> that has to do with open monetary policy, transparency. Mm. Uh, and 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 various regulations in place that give us confidence in the U.S. dollar. So I think that's similar uh, when it comes to digital assets. I think that digital assets um, that are regulated in the United States or are subject to U.S. regulations <clears throat> will engender trust by the global community. I think uh, China has uh, sort of taken the stance against cryptocurrencies, but like many other ways, they've created a um, special administrative region in Hong Kong mm. that can play around and sort of, you know, try out different things with digital assets. I think that you'll find that there's, at least in the West, quite a bit of distrust um, in the Chinese uh, regulatory agencies and, 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 the, and the Chinese government about transparency. And so I think you'll find a lot more of the capital will fly to Singapore uh, that also has a regulatory regime that is a little bit more open and transparent. Um, to the question, will the U United States miss out on uh, opportunities or will there be sort of a capital flight to countries that are more permissible? Um, I think the answer, at least in the short term, is no. Um, I think that the, the majority of investable wealth sits with uh, Americans or others in the West, particularly in Europe. And so I think they're going to look for markets that provide uh, institutional protection and uh, the ability for recourse if something goes wrong. Is that very good? Yeah, that makes sort good of sense. Answer your question. Can I ask you, we have to wrap up now, but can I ask you a final question? I mean, we could keep talking about this for ages because you're giving some real insight into um, what's happening with regulations and from a regulatory viewpoint. Um, but what's your predictions now in 2023, 2024? Where do you see um, the regulation going, the activity, the SEC? Um, you know, and, and what's your point of view of whether there's a position of that being um, generally a good thing, an enhancement for investment, um, or a challenge to the industry? Sure. Um, so I think in the next five years or so, what we'll see is uh, large financial institutions and institutional investors really focus in on the promise of blockchain technology, the promise of distributed ledger technology, <clears throat> and focus on tokenization of real world assets, 
or um, tokenization of existing financial products so that we can have the benefits of efficiencies uh, and greater adoption. So allowing more people to come into the tent. Um, for instance, a private fund that might've had a $10,000 or a million dollar minimum investment can now be fractionalized and include $1,000 minimum investment. And so bring more people into the tent for different financial services products. And I think what you'll find is that in the United States, they're going, the regulators will sort of edge out cryptocurrencies more generally into a sort of side industry that sits outside of the financial regulated sector um, and potentially entering the financial sector in similar way to like foreign exchanges, but then through the use of state regulated banking institutions. So I think whereas two years ago, I would have been very, very um, optimistic about the future of public cryptos. I'm less optimistic about their role in the global financial system or particularly the US financial system. Um, and it'll take some time for these cryptocurrencies to be able to prove themselves as a uh, tool for payments in the United States. Um, so I think I would say I'm, I'm bearish on cryptocurrencies, but bullish on distributed ledger technology, at least in the financial sector in the United States. And I think in the United States, we, we will likely see some sort of legislation on stable coins over the course of the next 12 months. Um, stable coins will probably be sort of the first venture in the United States where, where we will talk more a little more about public permissionless blockchains. Um, I think in the United States, we'll also see the emergence of a stablecoin versus a CBDC. I think a CBDC in the, in the United States is unlikely um, to occur in the short term. It may occur maybe in the you know in the ten year range, but it's much more likely to be a wholesale CBDC. Uh, it just doesn't I think gel well with the culture in the, in the United States to have a government direct to retail individual uh, token. I think there's a lot of privacy issues around that, a lot of um, competitive aspects of capitalism that don't necessarily fit well with the US culture. Um, so I, I think the things that I would look out for is you know, looking at different institutions, being able to tokenize different things, really playing around in the field for the next two years and developing some new innovative financial products. I think there's gonna be a very big focus on near real-time settlement. I think those are the types of efficiencies in the marketplace that will make everybody uh, benefit. And I think there's gonna be a lot of development in the cryptocurrency and the, and the public domain, uh, but it's still going to be you know, five years out before they really enter the US financial system. I'd be curious, Nitin, if you have a sort of similar view or if you're more bullish on all of the great work that's going on. Yeah, no, no. I, I, first of all, I think uh, once Sam is recorded, so we'll always come back to to this. And and I'm a little bit more bullish, barring the uh, the regulatory challenge that you that you laid out. And I would say that you know you your clarity that you provided this on this podcast has been enormously helpful because it's a complex area, uh, especially for the folks who are in the space as investors and folks who are. Uh, trying to whether you're doing a fund management or even entrepreneurs who are getting the space, it's a very complex area to navigate, and the clarity that you provided. Uh, me, on the other hand, uh, just by the nature of being a technologist, Sam, I have to be a little bit more 
bullish on permissionless networks because I subscribe to the original thesis of Bitcoin is, you know, empowerment and, and in, you know, of course, with guardrails and controls. Uh, but I'm a bit more bullish. I, I think that we should have some regulatory clarity. And I, 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 I looking into India's G20 presidency and them laying this out as a forefront of their agenda. My hope is that they're going to use the G20 as the top uh, 20 sort of economically strong countries to be able to lay the foundation of the global clarity that you talked about. So that's my perspective. Yeah. But uh, I'll say this, uh, Sam, I think we should have you as our regular uh, every quarter, every six months to give us an update and, and, and revisit what we've discussed, because I think what you discussed here, as I've always, I've worked with you, uh, the clarity that you provide is just enormously helpful for our audiences and even for us, because uh, I work with you in technology area. I work with startups uh, out of interest, um, have worked in the past with Derek on portal asset management. These are really enormously complex issues that we are trying to understand and, and resolve. So thank you for for, yeah. you know, for that and your time. Um, so hopefully next time I won't choke halfway through. But um, I just want one one other point I wanted to maybe make, just based on what you were saying, is that um, regulation in the United States is also highly politicized. And so when there was this explosion of activity at the end of 2020, it was because uh, Donald Trump had appointed a comptroller of the currency, Brian Brooks. And right before Trump was leaving office, instructed Brian Brooks to make a splash, do something. And so um, as part of that, they released those three interpretive letters that basically allowed banks to custody digital assets, operate independent validator nodes, and issue stable coins. That was all under the Trump administration. As soon as the administration changed and Biden administration came in, there was an immediate clampdown on banking activity in this sector. Um, just to show you how politicized regulation can be in the United States as well. And so I think we got to keep that in mind. So I think if we, uh, you know, come up to the next presidential in the United States, there, you know, crypto will be one of the topics that gets discussed. And depending on who wins, you'll find that they get to appoint the head of the, of the OCC. They're going to have impacts on how the SEC and the CFTC conduct their activities. Um, so I think you're going to find a lot of the uh, maybe set norms that have been laid down over the last several years might change when we have a change in regulatory, uh, sorry, in, in presidential elections here in the United States as well. So that'd be something that to definitely look out for. Very interesting. We'll keep an eye. I think we should revisit this as well. And I agree, uh, living in America, I think it's, it's, uh, it's more politicized than it should be because we should have a system that we can rely upon for ages and generations like we have from 1930, you know, 33 and 40s act uh, system that we still have. So thanks again, Sam, for, for being here and spending the time with us. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your acumen and skills. Derek, back to you. Yes, thank you indeed, Sam. Most interesting um, to hear from the coalface of what's happening at regulations. Hey, next week, Nitin, we might also hear about your visits to Washington just recently um, and your activity around Washington's review of the regulations. Um, and that might give us some further insight. Um, but for now, may I say, Sam, it was really intriguing to hear your views. Um, really intriguing to hear from somebody that spends their time building regulations on how you see things may occur under certain scenarios in the USA. And uh, I concur with Nitin. Let's have you on again. Thank you very much indeed, Sam. Thank you. Bye, Sam. 
We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.